This special episode of the Inside EMS podcast is sponsored by Verizon Frontline, the advanced network and technology for first responders. Learn more at verizon.com forward slash frontline. I'm Chris Sabalero, host of the Inside EMS podcast, and I have the distinct honor of leading this special podcast, and I'm very excited to do that with everyone that's here. And with me are the hosts across the Lexapol platform of their respective shows. From Policing Matters, Jim Dudley, my good friend Rob Lawrence, who is the host of the EMS One Stop, and the host of Side Alpha Podcast, Chief Mark Bayshore. I want to thank everybody for being here. And this is a really, really somber time for us as we talk about this 20th anniversary. You know, Chief, I, I want to go to you first. I mean, being in the fire service, you know, when we think about uh, the events of 9-11, uh, you guys were really the first on the scene uh, from, a, from a first responder standpoint. I, I guess the first question I want to ask uh, to, you know, all the expertise that's here is, what were you doing on the morning of 9-11 when you heard about this? And, and you know, how'd you feel about it? Yeah, and thanks, uh, Chris. Appreciate it. Uh, you know, that day is one that certainly the memories are likely etched in everyone that um, is on this call and everyone that was involved. In my case, at the time, uh, we were literally preparing for the, uh, we'll call it the coronation of a new fire chief. Uh, chief Ron Blackwell was going to be uh, confirmed by the county council that morning, uh, scheduled to be at nine o'clock. And uh, we were uh, interrupted at 846 uh, when that first plane hit. And, you know, Prince George's County is immediately east of Washington, D.C. Uh, so uh, as things unfolded, the uh, confirmation did not happen. We moved from the location we were to our emergency operations center. And my role that day was to set up the emergency operations center. It was kind of a, a hybrid facility. And um, what I remember so vividly was, you know, as we're driving north uh, from the county seat up to the emergency operations center, I looked west and the pitch black column of smoke that all of a sudden it came rising over the Western horizon was the Pentagon. You know, the, uh, that I can visualize it at this moment, like I'm standing there watching it like it was yesterday. It is uh, something that particular moment is something I won't forget. And then as it continued to unfold, as we're listening to the radio and of course the phones are going off and the radios are going off and the feeling of helplessness. And I don't mean helplessness as a firefighter, I mean, helplessness as a human, the thinking that, my God, are, are any of us going to get home today? Are any of us going to see our families again? And what's next? You know, that uh, feeling, especially living in the Washington, D.C., the national capital region, was extremely palpable and something that uh, um, I, I certainly will never forget. So spending the next few weeks dealing with that, and then, you know, you take it beyond that into the, the uh, uh, white powder uh, incidents that began in October. It was uh, certainly a period of, of, of my career that i uh, never forget. So Rob, what about you? I mean, uh, you know, you certainly on that day, it, it touched the world. And uh, what were your thoughts and, and your feelings about that initial day? You're right, Chris, the world was watching and, uh, you know, 
as as a Brit, you, you have those moments where you remember where you were, where certain events happened. Of course, you know, you talk about, you know, when, when John F. Kennedy died. For the for us Brits, it was when Diana died. Um, and this is another one of those days. And uh, 20 years ago, I remember vividly because I was just coming to the end of my first career, which was a, as a career um, soldier. I was an officer in the British Army. And I was working in a two-star headquarters for a two-star general. And uh, I remember the day vividly because we were going about our normal daily business. It was uh, in the afternoon, of course, with the time difference. And then we were called in to uh, the general's office who had a TV at the time. Remember, not everybody had TV offices, office TVs at the time, 20 years ago. And we watched in silence. And not only that, but more and more people sort of filed in and just sat there and there you could have heard a pin drop as we watched this thing unfold now remembering we're in a military headquarters and so there was a lot of staff looking and watching and listening um in disbelief of what was going on and then when the second tower came down i distinctly remember the point where the the silence was replaced by every pager every uh phone every computer bleeping into action and then we didn't stop of course because there were warnings uh, reports there was you know potential for terrorist activity to happen in central london of course the uk you know isn't uh, ha- has had a lot of uh, terrorist activity with the various troubles in ireland etc in the past and so there was an immediate heightened alert state um and as we all know we're seeing the events of the us and sort of allied withdrawal from kabul that you know the 20 years that followed you know were all go for everybody internationally. Um, and certainly that was my abiding memory of the day. Uh, I then moved on to, we immediately went on to a sort of semi-war footing where I ended up on what was called a medical capability planning team. And we eventually started to plan operations into the early part of the, the Afghanistan operation. Um, and then that was the end of my military career. And then I came into the to the, the National Health Service, Hamlet Service. And then of course we had the London bombings. And so it all was non-stop from that point, all go, um, and, uh, you know, exceptionally sad, but it's kept us exceptionally busy, um, you know, sometimes for the wrong reasons. Right. I think you bring up a great point. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we all became New Yorkers this day, regardless of where we were all over right. the world, right? And Jim, I think a lot of people, you know, we think about 9-11, we think about all the firefighters that were lost. We think about all the, the EMTs and paramedics that were there. Uh, of course, uh, Father Michael Judge was um, the FDNY's chaplain and the first official uh, victim that was uh, listed. But there were a lot of police officers there as well. And a lot of times they're forgotten in this mix of being part of this. So certainly you were probably on the job. What were your thoughts and feelings as this kind of progressed on September 11th, 2001? Well, certainly in San Francisco, it was no less numbing to hear the news. And I got that phone call while I was still at home with the three hour time difference, 3000 miles away in San Francisco. And it was unbelievable. Um, And this was after the first plane hit. So I immediately turned on the TV, saw the second plane actually hit and got my go bag, went into work. I was the captain of a district station in San Francisco with about 100,000 residents. Um, clearly command was, um, you know, inundated with phone calls and and communication issues. So we were pretty much left to, uh, oversee our own districts and mostly residential, 
um, some retail, uh, large gathering places. Um, so our immediate concern was to get everybody out on the street, um, make sure the schools were taken care of, that evacuations or shelters in place were in operation. But for me and, and other officers at my station, I was the captain of the station, uh, you know, our own families became a concern. So nobody knew what was next. Was this the first step in a, in a mass operation nationwide? So everybody was given time to make sure uh, that their own families were okay and taken care of. And then we got to work and communication was the biggest issue. Um, clearly a lack of planning, a lack of allocation of resources and understanding our own critical infrastructure that became a big issue for the the coming weeks and months and and years and we got a lot of support from ironically the federal government who um, who set up planning with police fire public safety EMS public works and and our big um, goal was to see what our preparedness was what our response was our training, planning, mitigation, recovery, all of it. So um, it, it, there was a good good came of, of this disaster, and that was to get us all situational awareness and to help plan for future events. And I understand what Rob's saying about, you know, here 20 years later, and are we prepared Um for the next attack. And I think there's still some critical um, gaps in, in our measures. And I think that that's a great point. And we, something we want to talk about in a little bit. Uh, I, I do want to share my thoughts with you about the day. And um, I grew up in New York city. I actually watched the towers uh, were constructed. I watched that. And I think the last tower was opened up in 1977. I was 12 years old. I couldn't walk out of my home without looking to the left and seeing the towers every single morning. And I remember watching the, I, I came up against the TV when the first plane was into the tower. And I actually watched live as the second plane hit my towers. They were my towers. I grew up in those towers. There was a, there's a big shopping mall underneath that. You were able to connect to a lot of different train systems. There were arcades in the, in, you know, in the lower levels. My friend asked his wife to marry him at the windows on the world up there. And I remember that there was noise and I'm looking at this in awe and I'm just shocked. And I keep looking around for this noise and I don't understand what it is. And it was me sobbing and I didn't even know. And I was the one who was making the noise and I'm in a public place. And uh, it was truly shocking to me that part of my childhood was now under attack. And it was very, very uh, meaningful, meaningful for me. And even 20 years later, I sit here with you guys as we reflect on the past history. And I have tears now that well in my eyes because we have not forgotten what this meant to us. And again, on this specific day, we all became New Yorkers and uh, it'll never go away for our lifetime. You know, Chief, if we think about it and we think about some of the lessons learned, do you have one that you can share with us? One, one of the things that Rob has said uh, 
Um, by the way, I, I must say that I, I love the accent. So uh, whether it's Los Angeles or uh, London area or Louisiana, whatever it is, uh, love the accent. I will keep uh, talking, Chief. <laughs> so the, uh, um, the, disc, the, the thing that he said is that most lessons learned aren't lessons learned, they're lessons identified. And, you know, that's interesting to, to look at a lot of things that have happened since 9-11. And, um, you know, we have had significant advances in the fire service, certainly, and, and in all the services, but certainly in the fire service, um, significant advances since 9-11. Yet, uh, we still are um, miles away from being where we need to be. And, you know, if you were to ask the question, well, where is it you need to be? Uh, I'm not sure I have the answer to that. But uh, I know that we've got to be able to provide the service and be prepared to deal with the intelligence and be prepared to deal with uh, the response to that. And um, so I wanted to kind of hit some of the things that, you know, we we know we've made advances in radio um, and interoperability, radio technology and interoperability. Um, I'll use the National Capital Region as an example and um, and the region I work in in Central Florida right now, uh, both. Since 9-11, uh, they have been able to uh, establish common radio platforms across their governments. Uh, in the National Capital Region, as an example, uh, not only did they establish a common platform for uh, radio comms, but a common um, uh, numbering and nomenclature system so that, you know, novel concept, right? And we talk about NIMS and all that, that uh, you can literally run from Maryland to Virginia to DC and back and forth and by a simple number um, uh, system, you know where that unit's coming from. There, there's no guessing and there's no need to have to say your whole jurisdictional name. And um, while plain language is good, sometimes plain language can inhibit. And, and that's one place where they've made a difference. And 9-11 was the direct result uh, or, or the direct reason why that system was able to be put in place. Millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and certainly when, nine, when the Pentagon was struck, uh, the apparatus came from all over the region, but the vast majority of that apparatus couldn't talk to each other. There was no interoperability prior to 9-11. So we've made significant advances there. We've made significant advances in the National Incident Management System. Again, a direct uh, outcome from 9-11. ICS was around and of course, FireScope and everything to, to do with the, the West Coast uh, forest fires and that had been for years and years, since the 1950s or 60s, depending on who you listen to. But NIMS really drew it together where federal agencies and law enforcement agencies and all the other groups recognized, all right, we've, we've got to come together. Now, I, I got to say that that's probably an operational place where we still have huge room uh, for improvement. And I think in some departments, and again, I'll use the National Capital Region, it's pretty widely accepted across the, the boundaries of law enforcement and fire and EMS that, okay, NIMS and ICS is the way of doing business and, and we just are gonna do it. But there are a lot of departments, especially in rural America, and a lot of law enforcement agencies that still don't use NIMS as a way of doing business. They may use it as a way of getting grants. They'll sign off and say, yep, we use it. But when it comes down to day-to-day -day business, they're still not using it. So I think there's a, still a huge opportunity for improvement in ICS. Grant programs. Um, we have flooded the market with grant programs. 
$300 million every year in SAFER, $300 million in AFG uh, for all of the other programs to go along with that. Uh, you know, I think enough is never enough is probably the way to say it there, but we have absolutely flooded the market with that. And then the last thing I'll say that where I think we've made huge gains, although we still have a lot to learn, is infusion centers. We talk about the amount of intelligence that uh, was available about 9-11, was available prior to 9-11, and how that was actionized or not, and, uh, and where the fire service was in the ability to monitor that information or be a part of that, and they weren't. Uh, the fire service was almost universally excluded from intelligence gathering or dissemination. Uh, and um, FOUO stuff was out there, but it was cleansed so much that it, it didn't, it, it wasn't actionable. So since 9-11, fusion centers are now in almost every state. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, they are in every state. They're in almost every big city. And uh, most regional areas have a fusion center where the fire service has a seat at the table. I think there's still room to improve. Um, but those are certainly areas that I think, uh, you know, we've made huge in, uh, investments, Chris, and huge advancements since 9-11. And I think you bring up a really great point, especially about interoperability. And, uh, you know, Rob, um, from your side, um, you know, from that international side, or, you know, even kind of building on what the chief said, uh, what do you have to add? Well, as we, were, we were talking in the wings before we came on air, and uh, I learnt very early on, and again, from my military career, we were told very, very early on in our officer training that a lesson identified is not necessarily a lesson learned, because we talk about lessons learned where we take stuff away, but we never really exercise it and practice and train with it in order to make sure that whatever lesson we learn is, is, is honed and, and taken home. And so that, that's kind of the, the, the first point. Secondly, I've always maintained, and again, I learned this on, oper on military operations, that the first battle is always communications. Um, and certainly that was one of the takeaways from the 9-11 report, where the, the, the Port Authority and various fire departments had no means to communicate, and the Chief's already mentioned that. But one of the things that I've always done is that when we've had major incidents, and I, and, and I even going back to the 7-7 the, the bombings in London, which happened a couple of years later, where homegrown um, terrorist suicide bombers you know, exploded devices in the London Underground, my duty station wasn't to run to the scene as the chief operating officer. My duty station was to go to the communication centre and corral and communicate and coordinate and command. Um, you know, because you, you can't really command right at the sharp end of something that big and that immense. So therefore, I had to be in a position where I could see. And I've always made sure that I've been in the communication hub in order to coordinate command, control, and if necessary, compute. And I think that, you know, the, 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 the biggest challenge, as always, is communicating. And that has a whole array, an array of meanings, whether it's on the radio or in these days, whether it's controlling the social media and the, the media environment in which you're in because if you don't come up with a briefing or a solution somebody else will and as i've already said there is one weapons grade device that's going around at the moment and that's called social media yeah and rob so, you know uh, interesting part of what you just said there is exactly the point that you made in the beginning everything that you just said there were all lessons that we supposedly learned on other events or through other things. And we say we learn them after 9-11, yet here we are all saying the same thing 
And that is that we have so much more to do and so much more to learn. So excellent point that uh, the lessons, quote unquote, learned aren't really lessons learned. Um, we, we have a lot of work to do. And it's just a great way you said it. What Chief Bayshore said was important to understand, and that is that clearly our communications was flawed during 9-11, and we've improved uh, on-scene management um, uh, communication, just like Rob said, you know, you've got to have the discipline to have someone trained to go to a communications post and coordinate from a field. And, you know, we're all first responders, or we were, and you've got to fight that um, that inclination to respond to the scene. And I found that out during our training exercises post 9-11 that, you know, we sometimes couldn't coordinate with our fire or EMS um, counterparts because they were on scene and, uh, you know, without knowing what the the implications of a device or an explosion were, whether it was a dirty bomb or something else, or that it was something set up to draw other responders to the scene to, to set off secondary devices. We really needed to be able to know what the other's plans were in these events. So, I mean, we started that conversation and then uh, the civil liberties issues crept in and we've pulled back. And and like the chief said about uh, intelligence gathering and sharing and information and synthesizing, uh, I don't think we do that well anymore. And I think the January 6th uh, Capitol incident was a great example of that where, you know, piecemeal people had different um, knowledge of uh, the situational awareness and the threats. And yet, um, you know, we had the high command of our own military saying they didn't like the optics of sending uh, a, a military force there, or we didn't have uh, people planning uh, for more people in the wings uh, to respond. We didn't have equipment on scene. So here we are 20 years later, and we're still having these, these types of responses where there's a glitch, whether it be from politics or optics. And again, I think the coordination, I think we need to improve the communications and bring back the dialogue between police, fire, public health, and EMS. Um, you know, we're having these issues of miscommunication, um, you know, across the fronts. And uh, I think we need to get back to the planning table and uh, we need to have the, the legislative and the political will to stand behind uh, the first responders and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to follow your lead. Tell us what we need to do. You know, Jim, I think you bring up a lot of great points there. And, and, it, and it brought me to the, the thought of, you know, are we really, you talk about, you know, the, are we prepared and are we ready? I, I think that we're, you know, even though we'll never forget the incident, all the training that we've done subsequently from then, does it give us the opportunity now to respond in a way that makes it different. But I want you to hold those answers. I'm going to ask you that after the break. I want to take a quick break here and uh, do our mid-show read. But it's been 20 years since the events of September 11th. We still haven't forgotten and we never will. So to the firefighters, police officers, paramedics and dispatchers, and those on the front lines who answered the call when America needed them most, thank you from the people who work on Verizon Frontline, your heroism continues to inspire us every day. And we want to thank Verizon for sponsoring this special edition 
of all of our shows. But before we went into that little break, I kind of asked the question, we did a lot of training, we went into that. And Chief, you talked about interoperability, and you kind of now give it a tip, tip of the hat to say we've come a long way. Um, for those of you who don't know, my ambulances were the ones that were in the middle of the Ferguson event in 2014. And there were a lot of challenges in 2014 in that event. This was the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I remember being on scene after all this training we did with uh, NIMS incident command and everything we needed to know. I kept asking myself, who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? We didn't set up incident command. Number two is we did have challenges with interoperability. I couldn't talk to the FBI. I couldn't talk to the state police. I can communicate with the county police. So now as we think about this in the future, you know, Jim, you bring up the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection at the Capitol, as we now think about all the things that we've learned and we think about the future of our respective career fields, are we in a place to do this job better than what we did? And, and Rob, I, I think I'll go to you first and get your opinion. I think with uh, you know every year that, that turns over since 9-11, we've had a new challenge every year. Um, and also, let's acknowledge those folk that came after the towers came down, and there was a lot of people spent a lot of time working on what was known as, or what is known as, the pile at Ground Zero. And of course, Ground Zero is a military term, which is the point at which the nuclear weapon explodes. So, you know, there is that kind of that. That's the the, the image that we we must never forget. But also, pay homage to those people that spent a lot of time and a lot of effort on the pile searching for what became a recovery, not a rescue, um, in the same way that we've just seen that happen in Miami. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we spoke to our good friends, uh, Dov Mazel over from United Hadzala, who flew in from Israel with the rescue teams to come and do that. But the point I'm going to come back to is that every year there's been a new challenge and there's something that's, you know, kept us operating at 110% all the time. Uh, in the last 18 months, of course, we've been very much on the front line. Our good friend, uh, Chief Gary Ludwig, said, you know, we've been at the tip of the spear. He wasn't wrong. Um, you know, there's always something to do. And there's something that's now currently taking our first responders, police, fire and EMS uh, away from us in terms of the COVID. And we are seeing, you know, the line of duty death uh, numbers are growing um, even now, 18 months into this. And so there's always something that keeps us challenged keeps us on our feet keeps us look forward focusing and perhaps that kind of comes back down to lessons learned and uh, I remember having a conversation back in the UK with a police officer and I sort of said well you know why don't you learn lessons and this is when I was a military officer and he said listen you you army types are on operations for six months of the year then you come back you re you know you you, you restock and you train for the next one we in public safety and this is when it really hit home we in public safety are on operations 24-7-365. We don't get a chance to stop. So sometimes we don't get a chance to learn from our mistakes because we haven't got time to do that. And I think that's one of those kind of points that uh, Chief Bashaw made, that uh, you know we haven't been able to adjust because we haven't been able to take a breath. And it's been the same for 20 years. Rob, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the 24-7-365, the um, all, all of the big events happen Yet all of the other small events continue to happen too. You know, if you if you have uh, five or six hundred calls a day that your department handles, 
and you have the big one happen, well, guess what? You're still going to have five to 600 other calls while that big one is happening. So our capacity to handle those calls um, is, is certainly driven by our individual department's capacity uh, to bring folks and stuff to bear. So to your question, Chris, of, you know, are we better prepared? I think we're better trained and I think we um, collectively have better experiences uh, to be able, and, and as things go on, as Rob said, as, as stuff goes on all the time, I think Jim said it too, um, you know, we're constantly learning from those, or we should be, we better be. Uh, and from that perspective, I think we're better uh, trained and somewhat better prepared. Um, a lot of places still don't have any more people than they had on 9-11. In fact, the state of Pennsylvania has um, a couple hundred thousand less volunteers than they had, volunteer firefighters. You know, that's a whole nother issue, a whole nother story. But since 9-11, that's one state that's lost 200,000 firefighters. Um, there's nobody replacing them. So are we better off? Some places, I think the answer is yes. In some places, we've got lots of struggles. And, um, you know, the political will uh, has got to be there. Somebody said it earlier, the political will has to be there to make the investments. Certainly, they've made huge investments in the grant programs. Um, I think there's some dubious uh, results at the local level, and that's just speaking frankly. There's some great examples. Don't get me wrong. There's some great examples, uh, but there's also some some dubious efforts to uh, spend that money that you, you just shake your head at. So uh, short answer, I think we are in better shape. Uh, long answer, if the big one happens today, uh, there's going to be a little bit of a cluster to it, just like there is on any other. And uh, it's, it's hopefully our shared experiences and common radio platforms that uh, will make a better outcome. Um, but you know what? We're not going to learn that lesson until it happens. Yeah, I, I agree with both um, that we have made strides. Um, we've certainly, you know, started the, the conversation again. I mean, here in, in California, uh, you know, we've we've defeated uh, internally the the opposition defeated uh, things like Urban Shield that just made us better at preparing for uh, critical incidents. And, you know, when we look at things like Orlando, uh, you know, the nightclub incident, when we look at the Las Vegas mass shooting at the outdoor concert, uh, you know, I can name a dozen incidents that uh, we're not training for. And uh, again, I think it's the political will that should say, we need this. We want, we don't want police, fire, and EMS to come together on scene and try to figure it out. We want to plan and we want to train and we want to know each other's capabilities. We want to make sure everyone has a playbook uh, and, and can respond and identify situations where we have a unified command and we say, okay, Chief Fire, Chief Police, you guys are in charge. Work it out. Uh, EMS, you're in charge of response operations. Something like that, where there is no downtime. We we shouldn't have to you know draw the X's and O's on the back of a, a police car or a fire rig at the scene of the event. So um, the less downtime, the better. Um, I think our alert messaging to community, the, the public is really great, provided that those systems stay in place during a critical incident. And we know, you know, in the past from these, these critical incidents, when, um, you know, we're, communication systems are flooded, sometimes only um, critical uh, agencies have the, the 
communication uh, capabilities. So um, I think we need to have um, regional uh, planning so that when these critical incidents hit, that everyone knows what to do on their own, should there be a, a break in communication with uh, larger central uh, agencies. And, and getting back to, you know, right after 9-11, when we, when we were planning, we were doing these tabletops exercises to figure out what the gaps were. Um, you know, a lot of money went to the big cities. And I think we need to look regionally and away from the, the larger cities, because if they're under attack, we need the, the sort of peripheral um, region to be able to respond and take some of the, the capability burden. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Jim. And even if it's uh, even just helping do the regular work that needs to be done, we still got systems that have to be run. Uh, and if those regional people can come in and help us with that, you know, one of the things that Chief uh, Bayshore said that stuck with me was, you know, sometimes are we prepared to do it? Um, I think it'll be a cluster in the beginning, but we'll get there. And I think that that's true. I mean, I think that the resiliency of first responders uh, and the work that we do, sometimes we'll get caught with our pants down, but we have the expertise in really adapting as quickly as we can to answer the call of the people who are dialing the three numbers or to, uh, uh, you know, respond to that uh, incident, whatever that is. I, I want to ask one more question before I get to everyone's closing thoughts. Is there one thing from 9-11 that still sticks with you today that uh, I don't like to use the word haunts you because I think in our careers, we've learned how to deal with those things that, uh, you know, give us a little shake, but I'd really be interested to know what's, what's stayed with you the most. And, and I'll share mine with you. It was um, before the towers fell to watch all the people climb outside the windows and try to climb down the building or the people who decided to jump um, because they didn't want to experience what was happening inside that uh, building inside their rooms that they were in. And it was really just the human side of this. You know, the falling man is something that I put on my screensaver on my computer every so often. So I could remember uh, the despair. And, uh, but I'd be interested to know if there's anything that you guys hang on to from that day, Rob, what do you think? That image you described, Chris, recently repeated itself uh, only a week or so ago at Kabul airport where that we saw people clinging onto the C-17s and what they were, they were doing and what your falling man was doing was trying to escape, trying to get out, trying to preserve. And actually in, in the worst case scenario, you know, literally trying to be found rather than being in the, in the, in the rubble of the, the rubble of, of the World Trade Center or indeed the rubble of Afghanistan. And, you know, we shouldn't underestimate, you know, the, 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 the person's need to, you know, survive or indeed be found. Um, but we've also talked about a lot about tactics, techniques and procedures and about, you know, some of the, the mechanics of rescuing or recovering or operating. But we should also, you know, think about the effect on our providers, on our cops, on our firefighters, on our medics, because for the last 20 years, we've been in the thick of it. And, you know, mental well-being, welfare, mental health, call it what you will, provider health and safety 
is absolutely key and it's never been more so than today because of course with the, some of the things that folks saw in new york coming back to new york with the opening of the COVID, um you know we have right now a very fragile workforce um so it's not all only about the survivors but it's also about the fact that if we're not careful with what's happened in the last 20 years and particularly the last 18 months public safety could be the casualty here i totally agree rob um you know, heroes will rally, right? We've seen the, the the volunteers of law enforcement and fire groups going to Miami for the building collapse, um, certainly after 9-11, uh, to New Orleans for Katrina and, and others. I think you'll, you'll still see that. But I mean, we see the effects, you know, 10, 20 years later, the PTSD and, and the harmful uh, health effects. And so, again, I, I think it's it's incumbent upon our, our national leaders to take care of first responders and to provide those safety nets for them to, you know, they're often um, overlooked in, in the response. And so whether we have a, a detailed plan of response or whether it's ad hoc or we're just getting there and grabbing some gloves and shovels, um, you're seeing the response. So I, I doubt that you'll see any fall off from there. But I mean, on social media anyway, I'm seeing more and more, um, you know, suicide watch, mental health, PTSD support and things like that. So it's clearly an important issue. You bring up a great issue. You know, there's there's two uh, pieces that stick with me and, and both of them start with pictures. Um, and the, the first one is um, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense carrying a victim out of the Pentagon. Uh, that picture will stick with me forever. Uh, and while I don't have a backstory to it, there's certainly, um, you know, some, just something that will stick with me forever. And, and Mr. Rumsfeld passed away just June 29th of this year. So uh, he, he did not make the 20th anniversary. And the second picture that will stick with me forever, and then there is a little bit of a backstory to it, is the picture of Father Judd being carried uh, to the church so he's being carried by firefighters while the dust and debris is falling around them to uh, the church so they could set him at the altar. Um, and, you know, I had the opportunity to um, speak with uh, Chief Pfeiffer and, and uh, Commissioner Cassano uh, just in, in the past couple of months about that particular event. And um, they talked about how when they were in the and this is the backstory that I didn't know about at the time. So this is something now that will stick with me forever, but they were in the lobby of the towers. And as the collapse was occurring, they took shelter in a, essentially a communications closet. They took shelter. And as things uh, kind of settled down and they went to find their way out of that area, um, they felt something at their feet. And it took a light, a hand light and shined it down at their feet. And it was Father Judd. Uh, and Father Judd was picked up from that point where the two chiefs were standing and, and carried away from there. So I think just the symbolism of their spiritual leader uh, dying at the hands of this event. And then the, uh, the picture of our military leader uh, carrying an injured um, from the Pentagon are two things that will stick with me forever. And aside from all of the heroism and the sounds from 
New York City of people falling. And someone talked about it earlier about um, people trying to climb down the building and people choosing a jump to death over a burn to death scenario. Um, just things that we'll never forget. Yeah, I think that's great. And I got to tell you, it's been a real honor to be here with you gentlemen today um, and, and reminisce about this and, and kind of share stories about it. And uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here. And let, let's go ahead and give some closing thoughts to our audience. And Chief, since you, you know, kind of gave us that last thought, if you want to talk to uh, your listeners and you give them a final thought about this day, uh, what do you share with them? Yeah, you know, and I think the first thing is that uh, we say a lot of things from that day. And I don't want any of them to sound or be taken as trite, uh, but certainly uh, we must never forget. Uh, we are now hiring first responders who weren't even born on 9-11. So the opportunity for them to just walk away from this because of the advent of social media that wasn't around on 9-11, uh, but the, ad, the, the potential for them just to walk away from this because this is just something that um, and I, I'll, I'll take offense and umbrage in this. That's just something that old people went through. Uh, no, folks, it's this is something that our services need to learn from continuously and truly never forget. We need to make sure that especially these people, the ones that weren't born prior to 9-11, can absorb the lessons and uh, make sure that they, they study the successes uh, and the failures from then to now. Uh, and if we can achieve that, then we truly will never forget. Very well said. And Jim Dudley, um, again, an honor to visit with you today, sir. Your closing thoughts for your audience. Thanks, Chris. It's, it's my honor to be here among your esteemed guests. And I just wanted to say today's a different day than it was 20 years ago. And again, heroes will rally and do heroic acts. But I think the mistrust of the government um, will impede a response to recovery efforts and mitigation efforts. And um, we're seeing some, some recent failures, um, as Rob alluded to, the, the Afghan um, events, um, the, the COVID response. Um, we have such a, a visceral response from the public uh, in response to a government that um, tells them one thing that changes uh, daily. And, and we have no real news or social media that we can rely on. There are so many different opposing viewpoints. So at some point, we need to have um, a voice, uh, a neutral voice, a nonpartisan voice to lead us um, and prepare us for the next disaster and, uh, and hopefully get us all on the same page in response. Again, you know, police, fire, EMS, public health, um, doing things behind the scenes, doing things they can't talk about in public, they will respond, they'll get into hazardous situations. And um, that's always going to be the case. But I really hope that uh, the support improves. We saw a spike right after 9-11. But I think, you know, too many people, um, people who were alive during 9-11 have forgotten. And, and as Chief Bayshore says, we, we have to remember and not make the same mistakes due to compla complacency or politics. 
Very well said. And Rob Lawrence, our international correspondent, uh, maybe you can give us a joint uh, EMS one stop and uh, inside EMS for the EMS side. Go ahead and give us your closing thoughts for the EMS community. For our EMS community, Chris, remember everybody, this is not a job. It's a way of life. And to everybody out there right now, thank you for your service. Um, talking of services, there is a great um, line in the British Festival of Remembrance that uh, it goes like this. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. And we will remember those that have had fallen, not only at the Twin Towers, but also the heroes of Flight 93 and also those that served at the Pentagon. And so we must never forget, always remember. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for joining us on this special edition of all of our podcasts. I want to thank Chief Mark Bayshore. I want to thank Jim Dudley, and of course, Rob Lawrence. And for Kelly Grayson, I'm Chris Sabalero.